0: When night has it's fought. good to have you all. Everybody here is enjoying sunshine and springtime, and yet it's going to snow in a couple of days, so just, you know, remember that. That's right. Yeah, that's great. Hey, two weeks ago and, and many times before that, you know this if you've been here very long, uh, I made fun of the state of Oklahoma. Uh, I enjoy doing that once in a while because I have a lot of friends and family from Oklahoma, and I like to just give them some grief sometimes. But the truth is, when I think of Oklahoma, I actually smile because I do have many fond memories of my years living there. And again, many uh, friends and even family, my sister and her, her family lived there. And so I I love Oklahoma, even though I know that those living there are still in bondage and slavery and (laughs) exile and all that. But no, seriously, um, some of my friends that live there live in Edmond, if you know where that's at. It's just north of Oklahoma City. And an interesting but sad fact about Edmond is that it now has a hole in its city seal. There used to be a cross in that spot reflecting their religious heritage, but after losing a very financial financially costly lawsuit to a group of people that were very much enemies of the cross, opposed to Christian values, led by the ACLU, the cross was ordered to be removed. And that Christian aspect of Edmund Oklahoma's history was expunged from the record. But rather than replace the cross you know, maybe with a more politically correct symbol or something like that. The city leaders opted instead to leave its place empty as a silent witness to the court's absurd attempt to sanitize the present by altering the past. There are many people today who similarly, actively, vehemently are opposed to the cross of Jesus. They see Jesus as a threat to their ideals or their lifestyles, maybe their ambitions, their freedom. Um, To them, Jesus and the cross on which he died represents bigotry or um, intolerance or narrow-mindedness or even some would say small-mindedness, weak-mindedness, such things. So people in this way are taking an extreme measure when they can to eradicate the cross and what it stands for from our culture, from our nation, and where and when they are successful in some situations, they sadly create, like what we see in Edmond, Oklahoma, a huge vacuum in the center of our heritage and our hopes. But Paul said, the apostle in Philippians chapter 3, said, "'For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ.'" Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the cross is a symbol of our past sins forgiven and a symbol of our future hope in heaven. And so stories like this, when, it, when the cross is ignored or even tried to, is attempted to be removed, should break our hearts. But we should not be surprised when there are enemies of the cross found. Enemies of the cross, enemies of Jesus even, our Savior who died on it. Because from time to time... Um, we are going to see this and we're going to see it more and more. In fact, you know what? From the time Jesus arrived on this planet as a baby, he had people trying to kill him. Um, from when he was just a baby, King Herod, who tried to kill him, uh, things ramped up from there. He, when he began his ministry in his hometown, Nazareth, people there tried to throw him off of a cliff. And then eventually the religious leaders of the day that we read so much about in the Gospels, generally we're talking about Pharisees, These religious leaders eventually succeeded in murdering him by literally nailing him to a wooden cross. Now, why did he have so many enemies? So many people hell-bent on killing him, even delighted when he finally was truly nailed to a piece of wood, even to the point that they taunted him while he was hanging there in agony and bleeding and suffering. They taunted him even then. Well, we've looked at the cross the last two weeks from two different perspectives. First, from the perspective of the soldiers who were unmoved by it. Then last week, we talked about the cross from the perspective of the disciples who who were distressed by it. And today, I want us to look at the cross from a third perspective, and that is from the enemies of Jesus' perspective, enemies who were actually delighted by it. This is important for all of us to understand, because if you live a genuine life for Jesus in our world today, 2019 and what is to come, you will also undoubtedly suffer consequences if you truly are following Jesus. So let's look at why Jesus had enemies first. The Bible tells us, it's very clear, very plain, that is that they were envious as you can see in Matthew 27, even Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the religious leaders handed Jesus over to him. Pilate wasn't a Christ follower in any way, and yet he could see the real motive. You see, Jesus posed a threat, a legitimate threat to the religious establishment of the day. Before Jesus stepped onto the scene, the Pharisees and the chief priests and, and uh, the other teachers of the law, they were respected rulers of the Jewish community. People came to them for counsel. People looked to them for advice, for teaching. They were highly admired. They were well compensated. They were at the top of the ladder in many respects. And then this 30-year-old son of a carpenter, an untrained guy from Nazareth, began teaching and leading the people down this other path. And the religious leaders of the day were very threatened. They were envious. They were jealous. I mean, Jesus did all kinds of amazing miracles. He taught in, in uh, great ways with wisdom. He loved people like no one else loved people, and so hordes of people followed Him. I mean, everybody just kind of started, many anyway, started wanting to follow Him and hear Him, and, and these religious leaders who had previously been the center of the attention were no longer so. I mean, they were like the typical three-year-old when a newborn arrives in the house. All of a sudden, the toddler isn't the center of the attention, and, and the, the toddler becomes very jealous. So these religious leaders did their best to discredit Jesus. Whenever they had opportunity, they tried to find a way to make him look bad. They did so often by asking what they considered to be tricky questions or trap questions where maybe if he said it, you know, gave them any kind of answer, they would be able to use something against him. But unfortunately for them, the harder the question, the more impressive and wise Jesus' answer was for them. And it backfired on them. They asked him questions like this. So, Jesus, should we pay taxes or not? I mean, everybody knew that Rome was, was ungodly and a wicked empire. So, what's he going to say? And he said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they're like, oh, didn't get him there. How about this, Jesus. We, we found this woman, and they brought a woman caught in the very act of adultery, threw her at his feet and said, the Old Testament says stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And he, the Bible says, paused, and in fact, even knelt down and drew something in the dirt. And then I'm thinking he looked them in the eye, but I'm not sure what he did next. But all we know is that he said something to the effect of, if she is to be stoned, let the one without sin pick up the first stone and throw it at her. And they walked away, the oldest first. Jesus, they said, you're, you're driving out demons by the devil's power. And he just responded, no, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And over and over we see this kind of thing happening where they're trying to trap him with questions like this. In fact, after another one of these encounters, when he had responded to their criticism wisely, they had, they had, critiqued him, criticized him for healing somebody on the Sabbath, and he had answered wisely. The Bible says this in Luke 13, when he said this, which was his good response to them, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And the people continued to follow him, which just continued to make the religious leaders of the day insanely jealous. Not only jealous, but even full of hatred Jesus didn't pull any punches with this group either, by the way. Surprising to many people, today at least, uh, Jesus didn't say a whole lot about the wicked government that they were all subject to, those in Rome. I mean, that was a rare thing that he said much to them. But to these religious leaders whose hearts and motives were dark and who threatened to lead the people astray as wolves in sheep's clothing you know, as leaders of the church and supposedly representing God to these people. He was very direct and blunt and used strong language. Listen to this. He called them hypocrites, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, snakes, a brood of vipers, even sons of hell. Now, that's not exactly the way to make friends, right? Um, If you're trying to build a bridge with somebody, you probably find something different to call them. But as a result of him just speaking the truth to them and telling them bluntly what they were, these religious leaders of the day, again, were not only envious, they were filled with hatred. And the Bible says numerous times they plotted and sought to find a way to kill him. And I want to tell you if you're a true follower of Jesus today, there are going to be times that you will find, likewise, that you have enemies simply because you are connected to Jesus, simply because you are guilty by association if you are truly standing with Him. Now, let's be clear. I'm not talking about the times when people get upset with you because you've made a mistake. Maybe you owe somebody an apology. You've done something wrong. That's not what we're talking about. I'm also not talking about situations when you're simply misunderstood, We've all seen that happen. People get really upset crosswise with one another over a true and honest just misunderstanding. Not talking about that. I'm also not talking about a time when people get mad at you because you are, and I don't know how to put it really other than maybe to just say when you are obnoxious for Jesus. And what I mean by that is when you, are, when you forget God's Word and it's In its totality, you stand on things like the Bible says, Speak the truth, and you do that, but you forget that Ephesians 4 verse 15 says, Speak the truth in love. You forget verses like 1 Peter 3 verse 15, which says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You stop there instead of remembering the next sentence that says, But do this with gentleness and respect. So sometimes we have enemies because we are rude, simply rude in the name of Jesus, lacking tact and gentleness as God tells us to. Or we have enemies because we've wronged somebody. We actually are the ones who, are, who have messed up, who owe somebody an apology. Or sometimes it's as simple as just a misunderstanding. I'm not talking about those kinds of situations. I'm talking about, and make no mistake about this, there will be times, other circumstances, when you live a life that is honoring to God you handle things the way you are supposed to handle them you speak the way you're supposed to speak and you will be persecuted for it especially as our society continues down the path we're on jesus said this in john 15 if the world hates you keep in mind that it hated me first if you belonged to the world the world then it would love you as its own As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And this applies to all of us. C.S. Lewis, maybe my favorite theologian, um, talks about how Christians will always be seen as an enemy in any secular society, which our society, our country, is rapidly becoming more and more that way, very secular. And the, answer, or the question is, why would that be? And C.S. Lewis explains it to be that it's mostly because we maintain a dual loyalty, which others misunderstand as disloyalty. You see, I'm proud to be an American, and I would hope most all of you are as well. I would, maybe everybody in here. But my primary allegiance is to my Lord Jesus who died on the cross for me and rose three days later and is coming back again someday. That's my primary loyalty. And you know what, for the most part, that kind of statement would sit well with people for many generations here in our country. You could say that, and people even who would say they are not Christians, or maybe at least not very religious, or they don't want to be Jesus freaks, or whatever they would say, would still respect that kind of statement, but not so much anymore. It is becoming rapidly becoming less and less politically correct or acceptable to call yourself a Christian. Especially if you really, truly stand for what Christ said and what his word says. Much of what Jesus said, much of what he stands for, much of what he taught is very unpopular in our increasingly secular and godless society. And again, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And let me just show you, I mean, because wow, did they ever hate him. We could, we could read a lot more than just this, but let me show you two passages that illustrate how much Jesus was hated. This first one is right after he was betrayed in the garden by a kiss from a friend. We talked about that story last week, and, um, and how he was then arrested and taken away to be put on trial. Of course, it was just a mock trial, a sham of a trial. But in chapter 26 of Matthew we read this. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas the high priest where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. And Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome again. He was like the other disciples distressed by and dismayed by the cross and didn't know what to do and so they all fled. But Peter at least wanted to watch from a distance. Verse 59 says, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, that is their legal system, their court, they were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put Him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Surprise, surprise. All the false witnesses contradicted one another because there was nothing legitimate to say. Finally, though, two came forward and declared, and this was true, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Yes, Jesus had said that. He was talking about his own body, but he did say that. And then, verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Sometimes no words are the best words. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Again, this man is representing God to all the people. And here he is just filled with anger and emotion toward Jesus. And Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, In the future you will see the Son of Man, referring to himself, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And the crowd answered, He is worthy of death. Then they spit in his face, struck him with their fists, Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? An incredibly emotionally filled, hate-filled situation, not at all resembling, resembling a legitimate courtroom. I mean, this is more like a lynch mob. In the next chapter, after he is nailed to the cross, skipping ahead a little bit in chapter 27, verse 39, says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, all the people representing God, mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. He said, I'm the son of God. And then in John 15, we read Jesus to say again, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We need to understand what is coming. You know, it happens all the time, even violently in many other countries. Not so much here in America. We don't see violence often anyway against Christians. But persecution toward those who call themselves Christ followers is ramping up. We see it more and more all the time. And I think we need to be prepared to see that continue to increase or escalate. Just a few examples. I don't know how much you watch the news or pay attention to things. I don't a whole lot, but I do some. I have several sources that I find interesting, and especially those that present it from a Christian perspective. But anyway, um, recently I have seen several different articles about how Chick-fil-A, I don't know how many like Chick-fil-A, I enjoy it, it's one of my favorites, yeah. Chick-fil-A has been banned, I don't know if you saw this, but banned in two different airports and multiple college campuses because of its alleged intolerance against the LGBTQ community. Now, the truth is Chick-fil-A welcomes all. All that they have done is that they have stood and said that we believe in and support biblical values. And because they believe in Scripture unashamedly and proclaim that, therefore they are considered bigots and intolerant and to be boycotted and banned in various places. Similarly, along that same topic, There's the man Jack Phillips, maybe you've heard of him, he's the Colorado baker who made national news who, you know, by simply refusing to bake a cake for a gay couple. Now he has thankfully been vindicated by the Supreme Court, but still he has had to suffer all sorts of litigation and financial struggle and threats, things like that. A Florida Atlantic University professor recently, listen to this, recently demanded a student, in, a Christian student in his class, to write the name of Jesus Christ on a piece of paper, throw it on the floor, and stomp on it to make a point that the professor wanted to make. When the student re, uh, refused, he was kicked out of the classroom and a formal disciplinary action was started against him. Now, later, uh, he was vindicated as well. But these kinds of things are happening more and more. Um, two California men were recently arrested and charged with a misdemeanor offense for simply reading the Bible at uh, on the property of the local DMV. It was considered unacceptable. They were arrested for such things. Now, the charges, again, were eventually dismissed, but this kind of thing, and there are so many other examples, continues to escalate. And again, in John 15, the, the Bible tells us, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Friends, we need to anticipate, and, and not be afraid, but we need to anticipate that these things will continue to happen and probably even get worse. So, the question becomes, what do we do? How do we respond? And I think the answer comes by looking at what Jesus did. How did He respond? What did He say? Let me show you, first of all, in terms of what to think about it. Jesus said this in Luke 6, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of me, the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy," he said, "because a gr- because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. So that is how we should look at it. That's the attitude we should have. But what about action? I mean, what do we do in response? Well, again, I think we need to look at how Jesus responded. Do what Jesus did. Follow His example whenever possible. And simply put, Jesus responded to these types of things with forgiveness and love. At one point, people yelled at him, full of all kinds of hatred and spit probably coming out of their mouth when they said, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you come down? He could have. In an instant, he could have snapped his fingers, he could have said the word, reversed that whole situation, caused all those enemies of his to be on the cross and him to be standing there, or, or just snapped his fingers and they could have all dropped over dead. Whatever he wanted, he could have done any such thing. The Bible says he could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't do that, praise God, because we wouldn't have been saved then. You see, he came and he endured for a purpose, and that is to pay for our sins, to become the ultimate and perfect sacrifice. Now, the human nature in us says retaliate. Or sometimes you hear things like, well, don't get mad, get even. You know, fight back in such a way. But Jesus said, and don't miss this, He said this while He was bleeding and in the horrendous pain hanging on the cross. In Luke 23, the Bible tells us that He said in that moment, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they are doing. Wow. And that is so true. They did not understand. They didn't have a clue. And one of the key things they didn't understand is that they were not taking his life. He was giving it to them. Nobody took Jesus' life. He laid it down. In the time we have left, I'd like to share with you three lessons quickly that we can learn from the example Jesus set for us in terms of how we should respond to anyone who would seem to be or, or think themselves to be or us perceive them to be an enemy. First of all, if you're filling in the blanks, there you go. I, I encourage you to write these down. Think about them. Maybe go home and talk more about it. Maybe go home and pray about it. Talk to your children about it. But first of all, we need to speak the truth without compromise. Speak the truth without compromise, but remember, as God tells us in Ephesians 4, to do so in love. There's a beautiful blend and combination of this concept all coming together. You know, when Jesus was put on trial, He could have hedged on the truth a little. He probably could have compromised on some of His answers or at least carefully picked some of the things that He was going to say or the way He would say them to to avoid certain words that maybe would infuriate or uh, upset these people more, incriminate Himself. But He didn't do that, did He? Now, we're often tempted to do the same thing when we get into those kinds of moments I mean, normal people don't want enemies. We at least for sure don't want persecution. So we're tempted to kind of water down or avoid certain things, but we need to speak the truth unashamedly without compromise. We just need to do so in love. Recently, I was asked to go to our state capitol and open a particular House of Representatives session in Denver in prayer by our Teller County representative, a Christian man named Mark Baisley. I'll uh, show you a picture here. David Rusterholtz on the left uh, as a friend and as a brother in Christ went with me, and we spent the day, or most of the day there in Denver. Now I'll tell you this. Our state government is growing less and less godly, more and more liberal in many respects all the time. I know that I do not agree with many of those that were in the room that day um, on a number of different topics. And when I prayed, I did not, um, I did not pray a politically correct prayer, I guess. I didn't plan to do that. I I didn't actually script out anything I was going to say. I thought about it some and prayed in advance that the Lord would help me to say things the right way and have the right words and, you know, that kind of thing. But I didn't script it out. In fact, after the prayer was over, uh, Representative Baisley came up and thanked me, and he said as such, as much. He was like, wow, that was not at all what typically we hear when people pray, but that was wonderful. Thank you. And we talked about it for a while. And And I don't remember all that I said. Again, I didn't write it out, but um, I remember that I said um, two pieces that I, I felt really strongly needed to be said and prayed. One, as I began, I just said, Lord God, would you please reveal to everybody in the room, all those that sit on the left, which of course were all the Democrats and all the Republicans sitting on the right, Kind of like a big divide. I mean, they didn't hardly talk to each other. I said, Lord, would you please reveal to everybody in the room, no matter what side of the room they sit on, that you are real. And that whether or not we believe in you, you believe in us. Because whether or not we believe in something doesn't change whether it is or isn't. I mean, it is what it is regardless. Our belief in it doesn't affect that. I said, Lord, would you help us to believe in you as you believe in us? And would you help us to understand that we need to trust you and humble ourselves before you and follow you and not trust our heart or our gut or our instinct or any of that, but to trust you. And Lord, secondly, would you help us to remember and know that that whether or not we believe in our enemy, he is real as well. And that our enemy is not flesh and blood. It is not one another, those that we might disagree with. Our enemy is not each other. Our enemy is Satan. The prince of this world, who comes to steal and kill and destroy, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour, even though he masquerades as an angel of light. Lord, would you help us to know that he is our real enemy? Well, as I finished that, um, Representative Baisley came up and gave me a big hug and handshake and said, Thank you, that was awesome. wasn't very politically correct, but that was wonderful and thank you. And, and those kind of things. And then he was really helpful because after that, surprising to me, before the business of the session got rolling, a bunch of people came up. I mean, I don't remember, but more than a dozen came up and wanted to shake my hand and tell me thank you. And, and Representative Baisley was able to tell me who these people were. Because I didn't recognize them. I didn't know them, at least for sure not by their face. And what was really interesting was that more than half of those that came up and shook my hand and thanked me were those that sat on the left side of the room, who I probably would have disagreed with in a number of areas, probably do disagree with in a number of areas. Now, I wasn't there to preach a sermon. I did not preach a sermon. They didn't want to hear a sermon. I was simply asked to pray, but I did pray boldly, and I spoke the truth unashamedly, but I tried to do so gently and with respect and with love. Now, I know some of what I prayed still might have offended some. In fact, I'm quite sure it did because I saw some in the room that very clearly did not want to shake my hand. They were not happy with me. I could just, you know, they didn't say anything. But I could just very clearly see that. But there were others that might, could have been offended, but were not. And I think that's because I chose to not only speak truth, but do it in a loving way. And that is what I think Jesus wants us to do. That's what Jesus did. He spoke truth, but he did it with love and with gentleness and respect. Now, I don't always do such things perfectly. In fact, the more you get to know me, the more likely you are to see flaws like that in me. My close friends, or my, especially my wife and boys, would tell, could tell lots of stories about times when I have totally messed up situations like that and not spoken gently and kindly and whatever. But since they're not standing here, we're not going to talk about those stories. So, no, truthfully, the point is I want all of us to understand that, okay, we may mess it up at times, but our goal needs to be, Lord, help me. Speak boldly, unashamedly, without hesitation about the truth, but to do so with love. Secondly, we need to love our enemies, love them, truly love them, and not retaliate. Look at First Peter chapter 2. The Bible says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Whenever He sets an example for us, we need to follow it. And here it is that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Kind of a popular thing from that day to this day. Um, Many people would say such things. But he said, I tell you, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The world tells us and models for us one thing, but Jesus tells us and models for us something totally different. Now, that's not natural, at least for anybody I know. Definitely not for me. My knee-jerk reaction when somebody, you know, uh, yells at me is to yell back. If somebody honks at me, it's to honk back. When somebody waves one finger at me, my natural reaction is not to wave with all five fingers back. But that is what God calls us to do. That's exactly what He calls us to do. In fact, He tells us to love them and pray for them. It's pretty hard to be angry or to flip off somebody when you're praying for them. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Thirdly, we need to consider the source. Consider the source. Don't blame people. You know, Jesus was able to pray those famous and beautiful, just amazing words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're even doing. He was able to do that or say that because He knew the real enemy was not that person. It was Satan. They were just pawns in his hand. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Friends, hear me. Listen to this. Our enemy is not the atheist, it is not the producer in Hollywood, it is not the pornographer, it is not even the child molester not even the homosexual activist, or the ungodly politician, or the ACLU, or the radical terrorist. None of the above. Our enemy is the prince of darkness in this world. That's what the Bible tells us, and we need to consider the source when we consider our responses. The people who follow Satan's ways are just pawns in his hand that need to be loved by us, even though we may strongly disagree with them, and even though we may need to, in some settings, stand up and speak up for truth and and even debate in certain respects and things like that, we still need to treat them as Jesus treated and love as Jesus loved because, don't miss this, because Jesus died for each of the above just as much as He died for you or for me. Even the disciples of Jesus couldn't resist the love of God displayed on the cross. Because about two months later, after Jesus rose from the grave, Peter stood up in the streets of Jerusalem and preached a powerful sermon to a huge crowd of people, telling them that they had crucified the true Savior, the true Messiah, the Son of God. Here it is in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. When the people heard this sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, And the other other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the the forgiveness of your sins. And the Bible says over 3,000 came forward and responded and repented and turned to Jesus. But look at this, just a few chapters later. Chapter 6 of the book of Acts, verse 7 says, So the word of God spread. Many things like this were happening. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of, get this, a large number of priests, probably some of the same people who had screamed, crucify him, orchestrating his death. A large number of them became obedient to the faith. That is what can happen When we speak the truth in love, when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us rather than flipping them off or responding with the same hatred that came our way. When we consider the source and remember that they are not the enemy. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're even doing. We need to remember he wasn't just talking about the soldiers who nailed him to the cross Or the the religious leaders who, who orchestrated those events to get him to that point. He was talking about me and you as much as anybody else. Because the Bible says clearly all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And how we respond and how we treat those who've offended us. Those who are enemies of ours. Those who've sinned against us is how we will be treated according to Scripture. Maybe there's a hole in the center of your soul like the city center of Edmond, Oklahoma. May I tell you that if so, the only way to replace or to fill the void is with the love of Jesus displayed on the cross that He died on for you and me. I want to invite you as we close this morning If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, why not today? Why not right here, right now as we sing? I'd love to invite you and welcome you if you would come and just tell me that you're here because you want to give Jesus your whole life, your heart and soul. Why not do it today? Others of you maybe have been there and done that but have not walked with him the way you should and you want to come, you need to come and kneel, maybe on the steps or maybe over here at the cross. And just tell dear God, thank you for the cross. Help me to live a life that honors you and honors what you've done for me. But will you stand with us? And let's sing together about how wonderful our God is and respond to his love as we sing.